And similarly, someone who's in your field who has great success as a creative artist or designer, if they start thinking of themselves as this great talent, the risk there is if they have a setback, if they fail in some way, then that information of failure is much more of a threat to their ego. You're listening to Episode 5 of Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. The other day, I was reading an article in Scientific American that was trying to answer the question, where does creativity come from? And look, we don't have time to get in the weeds of that particular article, but the short answer is nobody knows for sure. I mean, look, there are tons of really interesting theories about its origins, but very little consensus. But the thing that struck me in reading that article was that though there were all these ideas, the one thing that everyone agreed on is where creativity happens, and it happens in the brain. Our minds are cathedrals for creativity. I've heard metaphors that liken our brains to something of an editing bay, where we have all of this footage that's been shot. Main narrative points, behind-the-scenes clips, as well as story arcs that we hope to capture in the future, and so on. In this metaphor, our conscious thought is sort of what's on the screen right now. Of all the possible scenes and scenarios that could be on the screen, this shot glowing in front of us right now is all that matters. What's on the screen, if you will, that is our attention. Our attention informs the way we look at memories, the parts that we focus on, the good or the bad, and in what proportion. Attention is also the way that we evaluate our future. We look at it through the lens of risk or reward. Which side do we pay more attention to? And of course, attention also applies to what you're literally thinking about right now. Our guest today has spent decades thinking about the brain and creativity. He's a professor, a prolific author, and one of the world's leading neuroscientists. Hi, I'm Ian Robertson. I'm Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College Dublin, and I'm also the Distinguished Professor at the University of Texas in Dallas, Centre for Brain Health. Apart from my academic research and books I've written for the academic market, I've written a number of popular science books, including Mind Sculpture, The Mind's Eye, uh, The Winner Effect, uh, The Stress Test, and then most recently, How Confidence Works. A lot of Ian's work focuses on attention. Over the past few weeks, I've had the privilege to spend a few hours learning from him, and I'm excited to share his thoughts with you now. So Ian, in reading some of your work, this idea about how past failures and successes inform our sense of self is really interesting. 
And it seems to all come down to attention. Uh, when I look, for example, at my past, I can certainly remember or pay attention to a number of failures. And believe me, I relive them often, especially you know some of them more than others. But I do also think of successes. And together, these memories create a persona that I'm X, Y, or Z. You know, I'm smart, I'm creative, I can solve complicated problems, you know, whatever ego might emerge from those memories. Anyway, you seem to have a lot of thoughts around how memory and attention informs the way we go forward and it shapes who we think we are. Could you perhaps expand on these ideas and, of course, correct me where I may well be misrepresenting these arguments? No, you said that um, really well, Will. So we all have a we all have an ego, um, a representation of ourselves to ourselves, and you can actually image this, and you can see this in the brain. And um, we also have theories about ourselves. We have you know theories about ourselves, and these theories. The great psychologist Carol Dweck in Stanford has beautifully described this between. They tend to fall into people who have a kind of fixed mindset about them, theory about themselves and those who have a more change theory of themselves. A quick aside, uh, those two terms that Ian just mentioned, a fixed mindset versus a changed mindset, this is a really important idea to understand as Ian goes forward. A fixed mindset is one that is less likely to change. So if someone believes that, let's say, they're a creative genius and they really believe that, they're going to fight to protect that. It's a fixed mindset, a fixed way of thinking about themselves versus the opposite, a change mindset is one that, as the name suggests, is open to changing. When it hears new ideas, it adapts. So again, fixed mindset versus changed mindset. Uh, now let's get back to Ian. And the risk is with great success or with great adulation by a, a you know an over attentive parents, you can develop a, a view, a, a slightly, well, let's not call it narcissistic, it needn't be narcissistic, but you can develop a view of yourself as having this unique talent. So kids that are told, you know, you're so beautiful, or kids that are told you're so intelligent, or kids that are told, you know, things about themselves that give them an idea that they have this thing that is inherited or genetically endowed or some way, this thing that makes them so special, okay? Now, that, that thing can be a bad thing. It can be, you're so stupid, you're so ugly, you're unlovable. So it, it doesn't... But a good thing is, is nearly as bad as a bad thing. <laughs> a ba so it's, it's a really bad idea to tell your kid, oh, you're so, you're so bright, you're so clever. That... That fosters a fixed theory. And similarly, someone who's in your field who has great success as a creative artist or designer, if they start thinking of themselves as this great talent, the risk there is if they have a setback, if they fail in some way, then that information of failure is much more of a threat to their ego than it is to someone whose theory about themselves is more of a 
mixture of things. Yeah, there's maybe a bit of talent inherited, but there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of luck. There were good teachers. It was a particular time when I did this. And that's that's a much more realistic appraisal of where all of us are in life. None of us have this uniquely godly, godly endowed talent that, that's just dropped into us. That That's just a myth, but it's a very, very powerful myth. So, so you can see this, you actually see this in, in kids' and adults' brains. The people with a fixed mindset, if they are told, no, you got that wrong, you're wrong, you say in a general knowledge quiz, no, you, no, you're wrong. Their brains respond in a fundamentally different way to someone with a change mindset. Because the, the, the signal of failure, you are wrong, is such a disproportionately big threat to, the, to their ego, because if I'm wrong, maybe I'm not bright. So they, so any failure signals become a threat to this precious, but vulnerable fixed mindset that is, that, you know, and um, and what you see in their brains, their 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 all their resources and their frontal lobes and their memory systems become devoted to dealing with this threat to the ego, and not to processing the information presented by the failure signal. Whereas those, the kids or the adults who are, have a change mindset, their hippocampus is fully activated trying to, trying to work out, you know, what the right, and listen, above all, listen to what the right answer was, okay? And then you give them a memory test later and the, the fixed mindset people don't remember the right answer because their brains were so fully occupied with dealing with the threat to their egos Whereas the change mindset people were processing the, the right information and so they learn from this failure, okay? And that is generally true that it's a big, big risk to, after, particularly after success, to start believing you've got this kind of bestowed talent or, or great gift. And it happens to powerful leaders. I mean, Julius Caesar had himself deified and statues of him as a demigod put up before he was dead. And we see this in Stalin, we see it in Hitler, we see it in modern day dictators, this inflation of the ego and the, 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 the stultifying effect that has on creativity and in cre and responding creatively to problems. Right, right. I, I mean, you know, Kanye comes to mind uh, that he literally called himself God and he even changed his name famously to Jesus or even Picasso, who demanded that his staff refer to him as the son, meaning the son of God, i.e. Jesus. I mean, this seems to be a little bit of a reoccurring theme in the world of creativity as well. And it's funny because as a designer myself, you know, these titles, creative director, designer, whatever, um, they're often culturally synonymous with big ego. And, you know, in my professional life, I really try hard not to have this inflated sense of self and ego. But Ian, you know, the tension to me comes from the fact that even collaborative projects, they still have to have a singular vision, often from one person. There has to be a leader here. I mean, I think of something like Apple, right? I mean, of course, Apple is a wildly collaborative place. And, you know, when you think of when Steve Jobs was there and, and Johnny Ives, of course, Apple couldn't be Apple without... Johnny Ives and the team and the engineers and the marketing and all of this, but there was no ambiguity as to who led Apple. It was Steve Jobs, and you have to believe he had a sizable ego on it. 
So can you help me work through this tension, the tension of, you know, a big ego seems to be needed, but it can be detrimental to creativity? Help me think through that a little bit. It's, let, let me defend the big ego creative director now and give the upsides of that. And then I'll give you, then I'll give you a second, I'll give you another downside of it. The, the thing about uh, the e- egos are that big egos who are usually overconfident in terms of their assessment of their abilities compared to more moderate egos, and men more than women, this is true for. The thing about overconfidence is it makes you persuasive. It makes you more, therefore, more able to influence. It also gives you status. So if you are persuasive and have status, that makes you an effective leader, makes you more able to get a group of people doing what you want them to do, working together. And if you, then there's much less, if there's only one of you, if there's two of you, there's big problems. <laughs> we know this even from chicken, we know this even from chicken colonies. Chicken colonies that have two champion egg layers have overall less productivity than chicken colonies that just have a single egg layer. It's true of financial analysts and the investment analysts in the world. If you have one pharmaceutical expert in your investment analysis company, that company will do better in that field than if you have two, because so much energy is is devoted to the competition between the for for top dog status. So so ego has a function. Overconfidence has this this amazing effect. And yes, sometimes you need the big ego, and the, if that big ego has creative vision, then yes, enacting that creative vision will, will, is going to benefit from the big ego. So That makes sense. I mean, that really does resonate with me. So, okay, those are the upsides. What are the downsides of this ego? So this is a study done in Carnegie Mellon showing... We, we know that people with of different levels of intelligence, of IQ, you know, a bet, higher IQ, you're better able to solve problems. But they looked at group, the ability of groups to solve problems, They're the group IQ. They created a whole lot of small groups, and then they set them kind of IQ-type problems to solve. And what they found was the group IQ was not the average of the individual IQs of the group. The group IQ depended on three things. One was the amount of equal turn-taking in speaking of the group as they discussed solving the problem. So in other words, if you had one big hairy dominant man dominating the discussions and or woman talking the whole time, that group became less intelligent. Secondly was the average ability of the members of the group to read other people's emotional expressions. And the third was the proportion of women in the group. But that the proportion of women was entirely explained, that factor was explained by the better ability in women to read other people's emotional expressions. So if you, if you know, so, so it's a question really of the kind, what kind of task are you engaged in? If you have a creative vision that someone has that really is strong, then maybe the big ego, <laughs> this dominant um, 
I know what I want and I'm going to get it. That's quite a good way for getting people working together and people not fighting. However, if you don't yet have that vision and you're trying to come up with it, that's probably going to stultify the, the, the nascent group intelligence that will otherwise people will be inhibited and dominated by the the person who, who who overestimates their own ability to come up with new ideas. So there's probably horses for courses here. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And something I've thought about, and by the way, I don't know that I'm right in this, Ian, but I always talk about the various hats that we have to wear. You know, sometimes the hat I'm wearing means that I'm speaking almost none at all, and I'm simply trying to foster ideas out of other people. So, you know, for example, making sure the interns have, you know, their ideas heard, or perhaps pulling aside an introverted person who, you know, probably has something insightful to say, but giving them the place where they feel comfortable sharing those ideas or, or whatever. But then there's these other hats, you know, the other hat where once we have the idea, we know what we're going. And that's when I kind of put on the dictator hat, to use that ridiculous term. But that is how I think about it. It's where I'm sort of saying, you know, here's where we're going, go, full steam ahead. And I'm way less interested in debates at this point. And in fact, I, I have no time for them. You know, that's the moment where it's like, look, there's a deadline of budget dependencies. And, you know, I'm just trying to bring out, that's when I tend to go into the Steve Jobsian big ego mode that says, look, kid, it's my way or the highway, let's go. And anyway, my, my point here is that I find myself constantly oscillating between those two extremes of listening and fostering, where there's a bit more of a familial vibe, and then shifting to that more hard-nosed mode where I know exactly what I want, and there really is no room for debate. Um, so again, I'm not saying that I'm right in this, but I'm just wondering, you know, this has been my strategy thus far. Uh, so is this a common approach, or am I just schizophrenic? It's unfortunately rare. It sh leaders need exactly that capacity to put different hats on, to switch between. But even within our own heads, our, our, our own brains are a, essentially a parliament <laughs> as well. And just what you've described there, we, we have to do ourselves within our own brains to achieve really balance and success in our lives. And I think what you've just described is, is well illustrated by a different two mindsets. One is not, not a theory about yourself, but a, a state of mind where you have not yet selected a goal. It's a deliberate, it's called the deliberative mindset. So you, you, you're saying, well, should I change job? Or should I go to college? Should I change relationship? Should I move to a different city? Should I should I move apartment? So you, you haven't selected a goal yet. And what you're doing is you're oscillating between different pros and cons of different goals. So that's a bit like being in the, a creative mindset where you, you don't know what the vision is and you're trying to work out what it... But that because it opens your attention, that opens you to anxiety and to... Oh my God, remember when that, I screwed up the last time? Oh, that could happen, this could happen. Oh, look at them over there, I saw them. So <laughs> all the it's not just upsides. In fact, depending on your experience and your background, you know, the, the downsides too readily flood in to your mind in, in that deliberative mindset. But 
you have to be, you have to, from time to time in your life, get into that mindset. You cannot be always having know what goal you're going for and be single-mindedly going for that goal. You'll, you'll end up down a rabbit hole if you do that. So you have to be able to oscillate between the deliberative mindset, where you're trying to work out what the goal is, and the implemental mindset, which is where, yeah, you know what the goal is, but the question is, how do you deliver it? There, your attention closes down, and there, your problem solving. If then, you know, how do I do this? What, what about this? What about that? And the, 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 that, because your attention narrows in that state, um, you're less anxious. Because you're anticipating successful accomplishment of the goal, your, your mood is lifted. Increased dopamine activity in the reward network. And because you're envisaging achieving a goal, you're more motivated and less likely to spend the morning in bed saying, oh God, it's all useless. <laughs> so, but, and the, the great thing about um, the implemental mindset, and this is in, in relation to the confidence concept, is that your confidence is greater when you're in an implemental mindset, when you know what it is you're heading for. And women disproportionately benefit from being in the implemental mindset. So the, the, the real challenge, Will, is to be able to do what you did, is to, is to be able to change hats, change mindsets, saying, okay, and to become used to, not to become frightened of fear or anxious about anxiety. Because that's, because when, when you're anxious and when, when you're, you're not sure what um, the goal is, if you say to yourself, look, actually, here's an opportunity for me to think about ideas that I didn't think, I couldn't, wouldn't be able to think about otherwise. And yes, I feel anxious, but okay, I, can, I feel a certain detachment. I am not my symptoms of anxiety because that could be, could be just as much symptoms of excitement. I am not my thoughts, so I, I'm not going to, I'm going to laugh at myself, say, or smile wryly when I say to myself, oh, you're going to fail again, Ian. <laughs> and if you can detach yourself from your thoughts and these symptoms of, of emotional arousal, then you can use that open attentional state to say, ooh, here's an opportunity to have some ideas. And 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 do as say as, as Tiger Woods says, he says, the day I'm not nervous when I go onto the green is the day I give up. He needs his nerves to achieve the optimal uh, neurochemical state of his brain, optimal level of norepinephrine, to allow the, his brain to function at its peak. I've been around creative people my entire life. And I really believe that getting this balance right between the deliberative mindset and the implemental mindset is so critical. Creative people are rarely bored because we see possibilities in everything. But as a result, we tend to stay in that deliberative mindset. We love it there, where all possibilities are on the table always. And I can't tell you how many painfully talented people I've met through the years. And when I think of them, I imagine them as something of a Ferrari engine with hundreds and hundreds of horsepower there. And they're just sitting there revving in the red from one idea to the next to the next and so on. 
You know, one minute they're a filmmaker, the next they're writing a screenplay, and after that they're designing and then they're painting, and don't forget the banjo, you know. And believe me, I struggle with this as well. But with all that revving and revving, none of that horsepower, none of that creative potential is ever able to make it to the wheels and down to the road. None of us get to pass on existential angst. We all have to figure out what it is we want to do when we grow up. But knowing when to shift gears, when to ideate, and when to commit, that seems to be a big part of the game we're all playing. So, Ian, what advice do you have to help us get through this? You know, we're constantly oscillating. How do we move forward? Confidence is central to this. Not just confidence in being able to do something, but confidence in your own thoughts. Okay? So, go back to the deliberative mindset. You, you're, you're, will I move apartment? Will I move city? Will I, will I not? So eventually, nothing nothing is certain. It's all probabilities. We say, okay, I'm going to move to LA, for instance. You have to then love that decision. You have to have then confidence in your own thought that I'm going to move to LA. So thought confidence is an incredible precursor of confidence, confidence about you know the, the delivering the behaviour that's contingent on that thought. And some people get stuck, but you have to have the confidence to say, right, this is my goal. I'm pushing this for enough time for me to, to see whether it works or not. The risk is that people oscillate. They oscillate between goals. They, 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 they're indecisive. And because they don't have confidence in their own decisions and thoughts. Everyone, everyone has to learn how to control their attention. If you can control your attention, you can control your emotions. And you can control which hat you're wearing. Ian is one of those people that I believe I could talk to every day and never grow tired of. I learned so much from our time together, and I hope you did as well. If you'd like to reach out to Ian, you can check out his website, ianrobertson.org. And be sure to pick up one of his many books, including his newest release, How Confidence Works available on Amazon. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this podcast is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe. Be sure to check out our website, americabydesigntv.com. There, you'll be able to find local listings of our television show, America by Design, as well as watch special extended episodes. We're releasing new episodes of Fail Hard every Tuesday, so be sure to hit subscribe now to stay up to date. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for the show, feel free to shoot me a note. Hello at willhall.co. We'll see you next Tuesday.